You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. You're the bold ones who went out in this crazy snowstorm. Actually, I don't think it's that bad, is it? Anyway. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, so this is like the beginning of a snowstorm, not the end of a snowstorm. And uh, where I grew up in Northeast Ohio, I grew up in a little area called Uniontown, Ohio. It's right outside of Akron, Ohio. I was there before LeBron, so if you want my autograph after the service, you can let me know. And uh, it wasn't that funny last service either. But anyway, so uh, where I went to school, a little school called Springfield Township, uh, we were terrible in sports. I mean, terrible in sports. Until we had some really, really, really talented athletes come through, some Division I athletes, some Olympians, a guy named Mike Vrabel, and then most of them left our school and went to local private schools because we were so bad. But I remember our basketball team every year would win like one or two games, and finally we had some talent come through. And I remember it was a really big deal because finally it was like fun to go to the games and people would show up and they would cheer the teams on. It was like, hey, we aren't just being here to hang out. We're actually rooting for a winning team. And about halfway through the season of one of these years, my t- finally they were good. Uh, I think it was the center and the point guard went to give each other high fives. And the center, I think it was broke the point guard's wrist giving him a high five. Season over. That was the end of it. They never won another game after that. It's kind of hard to dribble without one of your hands. You're like, where in the world is this going? Well, last week, I gave you a high five challenge and has nothing to do with that. But I just wanted to set up the high five challenge. So (laughs) there you go. The high five challenge is this. We want you to pray and ask God to give you five names of people he wants you to pursue for Jesus. Five names. Now, if you weren't here last week, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, or maybe you heard it and you went, yeah, that's a really neat idea, Pastor. We'll move on. You don't get to move on. This is a big deal to God because Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he's still doing it today, but he's doing it through us. The question is, are we joining Jesus and what he's doing? Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a hypocrite right now because I don't have five names. I've got a couple names but I'm gonna keep pursuing Jesus. Here's what's gonna happen. As soon as God gives you the name, what'll happen is you're gonna start to be aware of them. So like when you run into them at the post office or the restaurant or the the gym, you're not gonna think, oh wow, that's ironic. You're gonna think, hey God, thanks for arranging this conversation for us to bump into each other. I already knew it was gonna happen. I just didn't know when or where. You're gonna look for opportunities. You're not just gonna be at work and start talking about, I don't know, whatever TV show you're watching right now. You're gonna go, hey, maybe God created this conversation for us to talk about something. Find out what's going on. How's your spouse? How's your kids? How's life? By the way, you know Jesus? Whatever it is, all right? We're going to talk about that. That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, we're actually going to pray and ask God to continue to give us names if he hasn't done it yet. So if you're visiting with us today, this might be awkward, but maybe God put your name on someone else's heart because they love you. They invited you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe you are real, alive, active in this world. You care about people's lives. You care about their homes, their marriages, but You care about their jobs. You care about the thriving in their health and in their business. But more than any of that, you care about whether they know Jesus Christ. That's why you sent your son to die on a cross and raise the dead. So God, we want to partner with you in what you're doing in this world. And um, I just want to ask, Father, that you would give us names. We won't stop at five. You want to give us more than five. We won't stop at two either, God. Would you just give us names and then would you create opportunities and make us bold, Father, that we would pursue them in your name. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
So last week we had, I think, I think this is the current count. If I'm wrong at all, forgive me. I think it is up there. Eddie can tell me later. I think we had 15 people respond to turn in a card of some sort. Isn't that awesome? 15 people. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God. And we've had four baptisms today. We had one in the last service, one of our singers on stage, Joel, uh, baptized his son. And um, between the services, a grandmother, a daughter, and a granddaughter all got baptized. So cool, right? Praise God. Praise God for what he's doing. Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, we know God is at work right now. We just want to partner with him. So what I want to do is I want to open a text, and we're going to look at where God is at work in the text and what happens in the text. And I'm promising you right here, right now, you're going to have more questions than I have answers. And all I could say is, sorry, welcome to Kingsway. I have questions about today's story. I do. And I've studied it, and I've studied it, and I've studied it. I'm going to bring you some of the things I know, and a lot of them I'm just going to say, isn't that interesting? Let's move on. Okay. So I just want to prep you now, all right? Now, before we get to that text in Mark chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, you choose to read along with us, feel free to open it. I want to start with the setup for that text. I tell you this all the time, context is king. Things are happening in the Bible in the middle of things happening in the Bible. So what's happening is important to where we are. We're in Mark chapter 5. We're only four chapters in. Mark skips the birth narrative. He's like, I'm not really worried about where Jesus was born and the temple and all the angels and Mary and all that stuff. I don't care. He starts right with the ministry of Jesus and gets into the baptism of Jesus, jumps right into it. So we find ourselves in Mark chapter 4. We're already multiple stories into Jesus's ministry, but he's still pretty young. Now, as his ministry is taking off, people are responding. People are gathering all over. He's on the, on the edge of the sea, and people are coming from afar. He's making the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. He's literally casting out demons. And I get it. You've got questions. So do I. But what's happening is as his ministry is being effective, people are coming from all around to receive a healing. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, he says, That day, when evening came, he said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. This would not be popular. Why would we go to the other side? There's plenty of work to do right here, Jesus. And this is important. We'll get to it in a moment. But I want you to get a picture here. The disciples were looking for a king. They thought the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, Christ and Messiah both mean the anointed one. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. The coming one, the one who was prophesied, he would come and set up a kingdom. And of his reign, there would be no end. So the people and even the disciples were expecting Jesus to overthrow Rome and set up a kingdom and to rule as a king. So Jesus, you have a massive following. If we're going to do this thing, why would you walk away from all these people and go to the other side of the lake? And what I can tell you is I'm convinced from Jesus's pattern in ministry because he was with the father. He prayed, he sought the Father, he said, Father, what do you want me to do today? And God said, we go to the other side of the lake. Jesus said, all right, there's my marching orders. I go where the Father tells me to go. And he got in a boat, goes the other side of the lake. A big squall comes up on the lake and literally the boat starts to go under and Jesus is sleeping in the back. It's a phenomenal story you should read sometime. The disciples, who many are fishermen, they're bailing water, trying to figure out how to get out of the situation and Jesus is sleeping. And they wake him up, what are you doing? How can you sleep at a time like this? And he's like, what are you guys stressed about? Hey, be still. And the wind and the waves calm down. And that's important, the story, because it, something happened to the disciples there. They literally look at each other, start whispering. They're like, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? They get onto the shore, and that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain couple things. We are about to meet a tortured soul. 
We are about to meet a man who has a really rough life. He's moved out away from his family. We don't know a lot of details about him. Is he married? Does he have kids? Did he beat them? Did he abuse them? Did he hurt them? We don't know. What we know is he lives out among the tombs. So he lives out of town, probably not dramatically different than, say, a graveyard, what you would think of. He lives out there. Why there? I mean, it's probably not too hard to figure out for yourself. It's lonely. He can't hurt anybody. And there's probably something spiritual going on. There's obviously something spiritual going on. In fact, we learn a little bit about his condition. Nobody can even bind him. So apparently, in order to control his fits, they've tried to bind him. But even that was unsuccessful. Look at the next verse. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. You can imagine as parents would have their children and they'd have to go down to the waterway, maybe to hop in a boat or whatever. They stayed away from this guy. He's scary, he's intimidating, he's gross. I mean, he's covered in cuts and slices, perhaps dried and wet blood, sweat, mud. Who knows what other bodily functions? He lives alone. And people can hear him, people with an earshot, as he yells and screams and cries out in pain at night. You can imagine the stories or the rumors that were spreading about this guy. People have tried to subdue him. They put him in chains. But the reason that's in there, we actually see this in other texts. There's a power that he has that is not just physical. He's not just a strong man. There is something inside him that is beyond his physical flesh. So Jesus has a conversation with a man. What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Now, you may notice, if you're paying attention, we jumped from Mark 5 to Luke 8. Those are the two different books of the Bible that tell us about the story. The reason I jump a little bit, there's nothing to hide. You can go read all of both of them. You will find they say almost the exact same thing word for word. The small differences are just tiny nuances in the text that I think are fascinating. So I jump back and forth a little so you can get a little bit more of the story the way that each of them tells the story. And that's interesting to me for something I'll do in just a moment. Stick with me. So apparently, the man doesn't just have a demon, he has many demons. Let's just stop for a second. Demonology 101, you ready? I don't know. Let's move on. Told you I was going to do it. All right, let me go a little further for those of you who are curious. I've read a number of great books. Most of them have been helpful. I still don't know. I've listened to tons of sermons. I've listened to scholars talk ad nauseum about these things. I've heard and read just about everything there is to say about these. Perhaps someday we should do that. It's not today. Now, the reason that's important is because the Bible does affirm consistently there is something called the demonic. And you may be visiting with us and you don't buy that. I don't know what to tell you. C.S. Lewis, I don't, I'm not quoting here, but C.S. Lewis has a famous quote where he says something to the effect of, we make two great mistakes when it comes to demons. We see them behind everything, so every time somebody does anything wrong or evil or sinful, we say, well, the devil made him do it, or we see them behind nothing. And I think holding the tension of those two extremes is where we ought to be. Demons aren't the cause of everything. Let me show it to you scripturally for just a moment. 
In the book of James, James says, the reason that you struggle with sin is because you and your selfish desires within you, when they first come up, you don't restrain them. You don't say no to them. You don't hold them back. And so when they are full blown, what happens is you sin and that sin eventually becomes a pattern of sin, which eventually leads to death. He doesn't even mention Satan in there at all. The problem isn't the enemy. The problem is that we have a sin problem. But that's also not everything James has to say about it. James chapter four, verses seven and eight. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So while in one part of his letter, he doesn't address Satan at all, in another part, he clearly sticks him in there, but I like to call it the God sandwich. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. In other words, don't spend your life focusing on the enemy, spend your life focusing on God because he is where your power comes from, your life, your hope, your eternity, transformation. Anything that's gonna happen in this world for you is gonna happen with God. You must resist the devil. So somehow, even though your sin is coming from within you, somehow he's playing an outside role, an outside force and tempting you and leading you and putting traps in front of you. How exactly it works, I don't always know, but I know that I will be accountable before God for what I do, even in the midst of the temptation. And I have everything I need for life and godliness. First Peter ah, chapter one, verse eight, I think it is. I got the quote right, maybe the passage wrong. I have everything I need for life and godliness, everything. So I can succeed because of what Jesus has already done. Now, what happens next is powerful. And they begged him, the demons inside this man begged him, Jesus repeatedly, not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission what in the world is happening here? Moving on. No, I'm just kidding. I won't move on. I'll give a little bit, all right? I'll give a little bit. So what is happening here, and we see this in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. The book of Revelation tells us that there is a massive war going on for the hearts of men and women. We are in the middle of a battlefield. We are. I say that all the time. And what we find is while these demonic forces are real in our world, they are rallying many humans on their cause. So the Bible tells us we have a problem with Satan. We have a problem with um, also what we call the spirit of this world. And that would refer to various systems and ideas and ideals that Satan has used in our hearts to create uh, oppressive systems or unhealthy systems or injustices of many kinds or evils. You throw abortion in there, whatever it is. And the justification and the logic behind those things that rationalize them and make them acceptable in our world. Those are the systems of this world. We get to this battle towards the end of the book of Revelation, and what we find is one verse into the battle, it's over. It's not a long battle. The reason it's over is because Jesus has returned and he's already won. What the Bible tells us is consistently, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus bound the strong man. That's literally a phrase that Jesus uses. And now we can plunder his house. And that's powerful because we already know where they're going. When Jesus returns, his enemies will be thrown into the abyss and they know it. They don't know when, but they're doing everything they can to stall it. Everything going on in our lives is to prevent that day from coming. 
If they could just keep it off longer, they could prevent the inevitable. And these particular demons know it. They don't know when Jesus is going to do it. They only know that it's already been proclaimed. So they beg him, don't send us there now. What's crazy is Jesus goes, okay. I got, I got some questions, Jesus, but now's not the time. Let's just look at what happens next. When the demons came out of the men, the man, sorry, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and people went out to see what had happened. Well, that tells us a little bit about where we're located because these are pigs. No good law-abiding Jewish man would have had pigs. It was unclean, couldn't touch it, wasn't kosher. So we know that we're probably in Gentile territory and we also know that we're probably in some territory where there was overlapping of the people because they're ready for Jesus. Jesus didn't go to the Gentiles, but something's going on here. Again, intentionality, we'll get to that in just a moment. So what happened was the demons come out, they rush into these pigs, the pigs go down, and now we got a problem because those pigs represented somebody's business and they're not gonna be happy but they're also scared of Jesus. And so people come out of the town, they're like, wait, what happened? And they find this man who still has the same cuts. He still is just as dirty and smelly and sweaty or whatever, maybe he went to the water, cleaned up a little, and yet there's something different about him. He's been set free. When they came to Jesus though, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Huh. Then all the people of the region, the Gerasenes, asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. And there's a point where you should be reading the story and going, no, don't leave Jesus. You're just about to have a breakthrough. And I think it's fascinating, and I'll get to more of this in a moment, but Jesus didn't force himself on them. He accepted where they were. But I think Matthew Henry makes a great point about them that we should not miss. Matthew Henry is a commentator. He says, too many people prefer their pigs above their savior and so come short of Christ and salvation through him. Let's just stop there before we get to a bigger point about the story. And is there anything in your life that you have placed above Christ? Is there anything that is more important and more valuable to you? And if God were to take it away from you, you might give him up. Now let's go back into the text for a minute. Let's come back to Mark because I love the way Mark closes this. Mark chapter five, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him. What? We get there. But he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This phrase here. So let's say God puts five names on your heart. Maybe he puts 10 or 15. I don't know. What do I do? What we don't want to do is fall into two extremes. On the one extreme, what some of us do when we try to tell others about Jesus is we badger them and, and beat them into submission. We judge them and we condemn them. And you, you know, you're going to go to hell. You know that, right? 
And I don't know about you, but I've not found it to be super effective. <laughs> Imagine that. However, on the other extreme is we never say anything. Hey, how's the kids? How's the weather? Job going good? To see those bagels? I mean, come on now, right? My Browns beat them twice. Just saying. And we never get there. Have you ever noticed that there's anything you could talk about in the world, but don't talk about Jesus? It's too offensive. You can literally talk about Buddha. You can talk about Muhammad. You can talk about any number of things, but don't talk about Jesus. You could talk about politics as long as you're safe with it. You could talk about the intimacy of what happens behind closed doors in your bedroom. But don't bring up the name of Jesus because there's something about that name. The Bible says it saves us. <laughs> so somehow we got to get there. But how Jesus encouraged this man to get there is just go and tell your story. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Just do that. I used to be so selfish. I still struggle with it at times. Man, I've met Jesus, and over the last few decades, God is making me significantly less selfish. I used to be extremely concerned what other people thought of me. I needed to please everybody. But now, man, I'm just focused on pleasing God. And you know what I found is it's way better, way easier. I actually please people more often. I used to be huh, so greedy, and I wanted to spend everything I got on my... You know, like when I, seriously, when I was little, like my parents couldn't buy me enough stuff. I had like a, a hole in my heart. They'd buy me more. I didn't know somebody had more than me and I had to have more. Now, now, because I met Jesus, like I can't give away enough. I want to give away more. Those are just some of my ways that God has dealt with me. I could go on and on and on. What about you? Is Jesus transforming? You just tell that story. And it's amazing how powerful and effective it is. But as I went through this, there were just some things that I noticed that I wanted to share with you. I want you to notice. So I'm just going to literally say, notice this. First, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice the intentionality of Jesus. Remember verse, chapter 4, verse 35, he said, let us go across the lake. Jesus had marching orders. It was not an accident. Eh, let's just wander around and see what happens. He was in the presence of the Father. God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? Other side of the lake, boom, let's go. Now, we don't know. Did, was Jesus given the guy's name? Was he told you're going to get there? I don't know. But I do know that Jesus was a man on a mission. It was not an accident. And you can imagine the disciples. We kind of even see this as the gospels unfold. The disciples are like, well, you got people here, Jesus. <laughs> you got lots of people and they're sick and they need you. And Jesus is like, I understand that, but I came to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. Second thing you notice is the grace of Jesus. We're gonna notice, notice this more than once, but notice it here, the grace of Jesus. He went to the one person no one else wanted anything to do with. Remember when Jesus grabs Peter, he says, follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then he took Peter most of the places Peter would have never gone. Let's go find the rich and the powerful. Let's just go out there and heal those who need me. Jesus didn't avoid the rich or the powerful. We know it. It's all over the story. He heals Jairus' daughter, a wealthy, prominent government official. He does lunch at Pharisee's house. That's how Matthew uh, kind of got into this thing. He was a tax collector and wealthy and everybody was judging. That's how Zacchaeus uh, was, again, judging, condemning. He had a conversation with Nicodemus. So it's not like he avoided the rich or the powerful, but he spent the vast majority of his ministry with those who didn't have much. Is there anybody, as you're praying about a name, is there anybody that you're like, God, I'll go to anybody but them? Here I am, Lord, send them. <laughs> Is there anybody that God's putting in your mind? Maybe it's somebody you honestly don't get along with. 
You might even consider them an enemy. God, send someone else, please, not them. Jesus went to the them. He went right to the guy that's out by himself, cut, nobody wants anything to do with him. Everybody's afraid of him. Nobody wants anything to do with him. Now, what I'm not saying is be stupid, right? If there is a situation where you feel unsafe, the very next chapter, which we're going to talk about next week in Luke, Jesus sends him out in twos, right? So be wise. If God, you feel like God's telling you to reach a certain somebody or whatever it is, like be wise. Take someone with you. It's biblical. All right, next thing. Notice the confidence of Jesus. He went to the one person no one believed could be saved. He didn't just go to the one out of his grace that nobody had anything to do with. In confidence, he's like, oh yeah, we could do that. See, so what's gonna happen is as God puts a name on your heart, it's gonna be uniquely tailored for you and your relationship and your context and your story. And you're gonna think, oh God, I don't know what to do there. I, I can't fix that. I can't, it's not, not me. It can't be me. I don't make any sense. Jesus had no problem. He is totally confident in the power of the spirit at work in Jesus to get the job done. And this is so powerful. Ah, I don't want to give you next week's sermon, but I'm going to give you a little bit. I like a preview, right? It's a trailer, okay? In next week's text, Jesus says to these disciples, go out, go, go, and don't take anything with you. Don't take a purse, don't take money, don't even take a change of clothes, just go. Because you have everything you need in here. Now that is power and authority. And remember in Matthew 28, when Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, then he ascended into heaven. He said, now all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So now go. You remember that? So go. In other words, I'm putting my authority, my power in you. So go. And that takes us to the next one. Notice the power of Jesus. He commanded the legion or legion, I don't know how you say that, with all authority of heaven and earth. And he's now given it to you. You have the authority of heaven if you have the Holy Spirit living in you because the power comes through what Jesus did, not yourself. This is why you have everything you need for life and godliness. You have it already within you. Notice the patience, though, of Jesus. He goes to tell these people. He's left all those other people. He's gone to tell them about Jesus. One of our elders came up to me and said, Matt, it made me think of Luke chapter 15, where Jesus leaves the 99 for the one. That's so powerful. What a great analogy. He came to save, and they begged him to leave. And instead of calling down fire from heaven and being like, you know what? Forget these people. Blah. We'll just start over. Notice what he did. He sent a healed man back to them. Think about that. In other words, he built a bridge. He built a bridge that if they're not ready to walk across now, maybe down the road they will. And this is powerful because that's my last one. Again, notice the grace of Jesus. Instead of following the, or sorry, allowing the freedman to become a disciple who follows Jesus, he made him a missionary to go back to the region and proclaim the good news. And this one's really powerful because in the book of Luke, we actually have a little section. Uh, I can't remember. I think it's in Luke. Ah, it might be in Luke 7 right before this. Anyway, I can't remember now. And in this section, we're told about all these disciples who have excuses. I can't take, I can't serve you right now. I can't follow you right now, Jesus, because I have to go take care of my dying father. Just like, let the dead take care of themselves. You'd leave everything and come follow me. Well, that's pretty offensive, Jesus. 
Like, how dare you say that? Jesus like, because there's nothing more important than me. What in the world could you give your life to that would be more important than me? But that doesn't mean quit your job, everybody become full-time pastors. It means right where you are, wherever you are, put Jesus first. And this man said, I will leave everything because I don't have anything. And Jesus said, no, you need to go back. Your job is to follow me in that way. Your job is to go back and testify. And in Mark, it said he went to the entire area of Decapolis. Luke says he went back and testified in his town, in the Gerasenes. In that area, oh, no, no, no. See, the Decapolis, Deca means 10, right? Pretty simple. That's where we got that from. The Decapolis is 10 towns, 10 cities, if you will, that they kind of gather together in an area. You might say Hendricks County. I don't know, whatever it might be for you. Maybe Indianapolis, if that's where you work downtown. In an area. This man understood because his life has so been changed and transformed by Jesus, his mission, should he choose to accept it, was to go back to the people he hurt, go back to the place where he lived, go back to the place where he carried the most shame and the most pain and understand that God did a work in him and he's not going to run away from it. He's going to run right into it and he's going to testify to the goodness of God there. And that's a bridge. These are the people who said, get away from us. You took our pigs. Get away from us. We're afraid of you. Get away from us. Jesus said, okay, okay, but I'm not done with you yet. Now, what happens if that man says, no, Jesus, I'm going to go with you anyway? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess God could have raised up a rock to tell them. It's just that he raised up this man to tell them. Imagine. What if Kingsway was a church where everyone partnered together to win people to Jesus? Imagine that for a second. What would that look like? Last year, we launched this Love Your Neighbor initiative. Now imagine with me, imagine that I'm being effective in my work. I'm loving my neighbors, I'm building a relationship. It's finally come time. I invite them to Kingsway and they show up. I don't know if you know this or not. I'm kind of busy on Sunday mornings. It's really hard to see me. Sometimes people come up to me and I'd be like, man, I haven't seen you in like a month. And like, you doing okay? You've been, like, we've been missing you. You're sick. Are you walking away from Jesus? What's happening? And they're like, Matt, I've been here every single week. I just didn't see you. Like, ah, I'm sorry. I know I'm always talking to somebody. I'm busy. I'm all over, like a water spider, right? Like, mm, anyway, like I'm all over the place. So imagine my neighbor comes and it's like, okay, you're going to come to 11 o'clock service? Great. 11 o'clock service. That's his service. All right. We'll see you at 11. Now, my family comes 11. So usually it's right about a quarter till or so. If I'm in a conversation with you, they'll be like, hey, I got to go. I got to check my kids in. So I run down, I grab the stickers, and then I usually meet my family at the door and I go get them and I help bring them in. And my wife comes in so she can greet people and say hi, relax, and get focused and worship Jesus. So this is my chance to run, drop the kids off. And you know, then I come in and I'm coming back in. And imagine they come to meet me. And I, I never got to see them because I went from meeting my family and checking them in and running around and whatever. So they show up in the parking lot. Did anybody say hi to them? When they got to the front door, were there people there to greet them and say, welcome to Kingsway. We are so glad you're here today. They've got some kids maybe, right? And so somebody takes them and says, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to go over there to check your kids in. And they go over and they're staring at a bunch of computers like, oh, I don't know what to do. Is there anybody there to take them and say, let me help walk you through this process. How old are your kids? And then they get to the door and they've got to get down to a classroom. Let's imagine, is there any teacher in the room for their kids that day? Just psychology of evangelism 101, by the way. If a parent is sitting in this room and they don't trust that their kids are safe, it doesn't matter what I say. They're not listening. They're worried about their most prized possession. 
So then they finally make it into service. Somebody told them, oh, there's a coffee bar. And they're thinking, I don't, do I have time to grab a coffee? And the music started, so it's dark. They think, ah, maybe I'll skip the coffee. They come in, the room is dark. I can't find a seat. I don't know where to sit. Is, is, is Matt's wife here? Is Rachel here somewhere? I could sit with her. They wander around. Will anybody show them where to get seated? And then Amos comes out, and it's just him and a guitar because there's no band members. <laughs> there's nobody to sing. There's nobody to play an instrument. And then at the end of the service, it's like, hey, well, we're so glad you're here today. If you're ready to make a decision for Jesus, yeah, good luck. Have a great day. Will there be anybody who will take them and explain to them the gospel and help them to understand what it means to walk with Jesus? Now imagine a church where all of those things and more are happening because everybody says, I have an individual role and I have a corporate role. I have a role to love my neighbors, but then when I show up, the church is going to blow their minds. Now imagine a situation where somebody shows up and instead the people around them, they, don't, they aren't just there. The people around them go, I don't recognize that dude. And they say, hey, welcome to Kingsway. How long you been here now? And they might just say, man, I come every day for like 10 years. I just normally sit on that side of the room. Fine, so be it. Imagine being so not afraid of what anybody else might think because we're all in this together that everybody goes, I'm going to make sure there ain't nobody around me that doesn't at least get said hi to. That is terrible English and I don't care. <laughs> but imagine a world like that. I can tell you, we're close. We're close. We got some growing to do. And maybe the growing that God wants to do is through you. Why does it always have to be send someone else, God? Why not you? I picked up a book that I've read uh, twice now, I think. Um, I highly recommend it. If you're like, hey, I don't know what book I should read. Pick up the book, Experiencing God. It's so good. We went through it four years ago, I think it was, whatever, a handful of years ago or so. I want to read a quick story from the book because it's just such a great testimony to this idea. The guy who wrote the book is, is primarily a guy named Henry Blackaby, and he talks about being invited to go to a church and speak at this church. And when he was speaking at the church, at the end of the service, they did what they call an altar call, and people were able to come down front and either pray at the stage or respond or whatever. And he says, when he was done, this young girl came forward to pray, but he was by herself. So he was standing on the front row, and he's watching, and nobody in the church came alongside this young girl. So he just got up for the front row, even though he's a guest speaker, and he went and he stood next to her. And he listened to her praying. And she was praying for her friend, her nine-year-old friend, that her friend would come to know Jesus. God had put that friend's name on her heart, so she was just praying. And he was a little disappointed that the church didn't surround her, but he was proud of the girl. Well, that night they came back together and he did some evening stuff, just like Northview recently did, the Max and Cato, for those of you who went up there. He said in the evening, though, and he was asked to come back and speak. And at the end of it, he gave another altar call. And here's what he says. I couldn't help myself. I spoke up and said, Pastor, you are hiding the activity of God from your people. Then I recounted for the congregation what had happened. See, that night at the altar call, that little girl came walking down the aisle with a friend with her. And what happened was the pastor stood up as they walked down the aisle, talked to the little girl, and then in that church, this isn't how we do it. <laughs> in that church, they just started to vote on whether or not that little girl could become a member. And Henry Blackaby's watching this and he's like, what is happening here? This church is not paying attention to the activity of God. God is moving. God stirred a little girl this morning to pray. Nobody talked about it. That girl got bold and invited her friend, and that friend came. She's receiving Jesus, and this church is voting on whether or not they should become a member. 
And now Henry Blackaby, who's the guest, is like, what? And he starts to call the pastor out. And I'm just telling you, if I have a guest speaker and he starts to call me out, I'm not going to be real happy. <laughs> but I'm also not perfect. And sometimes I have to repent too. That morning, he goes on, he said, God had clearly spoken to the little girl about her friend's need for salvation. She had walked to the front of that imposing church auditorium and prayed for her friend. Then she'd gone home and invited her friend to come back to the evening service with her. Now, just a few hours later, we were witnessing the miracle of someone's eternal salvation. The congregation was responding by merely taking a formal routine vote for someone to be added to their church role. The pastor began to weep and ask his people to forgive him. He realized he had been practicing religion but had not been helping the people recognize God's activity in their midst. God was powerfully working in the lives of some of that church's youngest members, and no one even seemed to notice. As the congregation began to watch for God's activity in their midst, a completely new, exciting dynamic grew up within the church. Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. God, grow that up in us. Father, please, do you believe that God is at work around you? Do you believe that God wants to save your kids and your parents and your spouse and your friends? Do you believe that God wants to save your enemies? Do you believe that God wants to use you to do it? What would happen if we actually believed that God is in the saving business and he's doing something in the world and he's just looking for a few good men, a few good women who would say, here I am. One of the songs we sang today said something like, the more we say yes, the more we see your kingdom come. That's the point. We don't say, God, no, not me. God, send someone else. Yes. Yes, God, what do you want? Where do you want me to go? I may not have all the answers. I might have to build bridges that take a long time for people to walk across. I might have to be patient, but God, please don't let me say no. I want to close with one last passage. I'm going to take it from the message translation because I think the message just nails, nails the heart of this text. This comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And what's happening in this text is uh, the church in Corinth has gotten confused about the job, <laughs> the, the calling. And they're arguing. Some are saying, well, I was baptized by Peter, Cephas. Others are saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. Others are saying, well, I was baptized by Apollos. He's a really sharp, young preacher. And the church is fighting over who won them to the Lord. And Paul wrote this, and Paul says this. Who do you think Paul is anyway? He's talking about himself. Who am I? You're like, well, you wrote two-thirds in the New Testament, you know? <laughs> you did get called up into heaven. You got to hear and see some things that all of us can't wait to hear and see. He's like, I'm no one. Then he goes on, he says, or Apollos. Like, no offense, bro, but who's that guy? Servants, both of us, servants for who waited, who waited on you as you gradually learn to entrust your lives to our mutual master. We each carried out our servant assignment. I planted the seed, Apollos watered the plants, but God made you grow. In other words, I might be greeting somebody, I might be making coffee, I might be in kids ministry, I might be leading a life group or playing worship, I might be the guy preaching today. I just happen to be. But the point is, it's all God's work, it's not my work. If God isn't in it, it doesn't matter, we aren't going anywhere. Then he goes on, he says, it's not the one who plants or the one who waters who is at the center of this process. It's God who makes things grow. Planting and watering are menial servant jobs at minimum's wage. What makes them worth doing is the God we are serving. You happen to be God's field in which we are working. 
I don't know where this message is going to land. Like I said, there were about 15 people last week who responded and said, here I am, send me. I think God is still going to stir in hearts. We've had at least one person respond last service. I don't know what God's going to do during the week, but I don't want to miss an opportunity for you. So what is God calling you to do? If God's calling you to get invested, to plug in here, I just want you to text the word CONNECT. 317-565-4911. But let me just be bolder than that for a minute. If you leave here today, you aren't going to text. You're going to start watching football games and get ready for school and work tomorrow. You're going to pick up on your fall cleaning you've been needing to do, whatever it might be. And you'll miss the moment. I don't think the opportunity is gone. I know that God's building a bridge so that you'll walk across it, but why would you want to wait to walk across it? Don't you look at the people who are afraid of Jesus? Don't you want to, like, shake them? Say, you're passing up the king of the universe. You're going to let him walk across the lake. Do you know what he's going to go do on the other side of the lake? He could do that here. We do it all the time. But why not you, and why not now? When the service is over, just go to our Connect Hub and say, I don't know what God wants to do, but here's my name, and here's how to get a hold of me. And we'll reach out to you and figure it out from there. And the other thing I want to do real quick is I want to invite you to know that Jesus. Last service, I was told that as I did what I'm about to do, a lady on the front row raised her hand. I said, I don't know what it means, but me. God's calling me. God wants me. Maybe you have felt tormented by your past. Something you've done or others have done to you. Maybe... You've even wondered, is this a demonic influence in my life? I don't know. But you're knowing that right now you need a savior and his name is Jesus. And you know right now you need set free. And you hear the story of that man who was set free and you think, I want that. Why can't I have that? You can. You can. And it starts with a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that starts with a decision, a decision to follow him. If that's you right now, I just want you to raise your hand. We have a team of people at Kingsway who love you and they love this church. They're just going to come to you. They're just going to hand you a card and they're just going to get your information. That's it. It's not intimidating at all. But you can't T-Rex this bad boy, right? You can't do this thing because they can't see you. You got to be bold enough to say, I don't know what I need. I just know that what I'm going through right now isn't working and I need help. God, help me. Raise your hand and we will come and talk to you about it. The rest of us are going to pray. Father God, thank you for moving in our midst. Thank you for the four people who were baptized today. Thank you, God, for the cards that are coming in of people saying, I don't just want to watch church happen. I want to be the church. God, help us to be a church that works together for the sake of the gospel. Whether we're planting seeds or pulling weeds or whether we're, we're, we're watering God or whether we're pruning or growing or pouring into or taking care of or providing sunshine or shade, whatever it is that we are in this planting process. It's all for you. It's all for you. You and you alone are worthy. So God, take us, take our lives, make something of it, Father. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, amen.